1: We're so so proud proud
2: of you, you, Uncle Josh. You're You're listening to episode 100. 100. Hello and welcome to Busy Being Black, the 100th episode. I thought it only right to have this come...
3: Hey, hey, stop. Stop speaking. (laughs) Today... My name is Dilemma. We are actually going to discuss why Josh created Busy Being Black and exactly who Josh Rivers is and what Josh Rivers has been able to accomplish with his amazing use of vocabulary and connection (laughs) and emotions. So today, this is your show. I'm Dilemma and I'm Busy Being Black with Josh Rivers. Busy Being Black Do you know what's been happening to me recently with my facial hair? Gay men have been approaching me.
2: Honestly. How interesting is that? interesting. That
3: sounds like heaven to me.
2: You know what's um, interesting about this? And it just came to my head, so I don't know if I have the right language. Mm. But, you know, I'm doing lots of reading, uh, particularly in this kind of queer theoretical space. And I'm going back Mm -hmm. because I'm rather au fait with modern queer theory, mm-hmm. but less so with the theory that our elders and ancestors produced in the academy and from the streets, mm. uh, you know, post-Stonewall. And so uh, Mario Miele's Towards a Gay Communism is one of them. After 68 by Guy Ockingham is another. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there is, at the time, there was this incredible grasp and understanding of the idea that Our sexuality is this category imposes and restricts, it limits. Mm. And in the 60s and 70s, Ockingham and Miele, who I understand didn't like each other, but they were both arguing for the same thing. They were arguing for a transsexuality and not transgender as we now know that, Mm -hmm. but transsexuality is in loving beyond borders, loving beyond restrictions, loving Loving beyond 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 the binary, right? And it's really made me think because when I came out, I originally came out as bi, I had a girlfriend at the time.
3: Oh wow, okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I
2: was obsessed with her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought she was amazing, we had sex, I I was madly in love with her. Mm -hmm. But I also had these feelings for Uh, men. Absolutely. And I thought that I couldn't love her the way she needed to be loved because I felt these feelings for men and so I broke wow. up with her. And she was like, "What? That doesn't make even then at 17, she was like that doesn't make any sense." Wow. Yeah, and so I think I then kind of shuttled myself into this fixed identity category of gay. Absolutely. Because it's it's more legible. It's easier for people to understand. It's easy, easier for me to get my head around. Absolutely. But now I'm like, "Well, I wonder what it would be like to return to that 17-year-old Josh mm. who was perfectly happy with Nikita. There was nothing wrong about that that relationship." Mhm. But I didn't know how to hold those two desires simultaneously.
3: Do you know what's interesting? I feel like the place that I'm at in my life, I think that that's exactly where I am
2: mm.
3: with regards to being able to hold that space. Because like I said, what's been happening after my physical appearance changed, which is, it's changing again. I mean, like I said, I'm al- I'm always going, in b- I hate binaries. I want to mm. kick I kick it the fuck out of the way, in every way, in every way. And so what's been happening... um, since uh my physical change the interest has been so interesting because yes i date women yes i date men like i've always i've never said i was a lesbian you know i've always said right. i was queer um so but what ha- the, the 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 change that happened is like um i don't really see why i should limit myself in that way and also it's interesting about how naked people get around me
2: do you mean their desire for you becomes naked
3: their their lack of um, uh, their lack of like a boundary or b- a barrier I see, I see. you know like it's almost like for example like even with like me insist straight men what has happened is that sometimes they think I'm a man depending on how I'm dressed and then they realize that I am a woman and then they don't know what to do with themselves right, right, right. so they actually stop pretending themselves that's what's been interesting
2: That is fascinating. It's so fascinating. And it's confronting, right? Mm. Because there you have it, a direct reflection of your desire back to you. And once it's confronted and it's in front of you, what are you going to do, right? You can continue to to suppress it or repress it or sublimate it, as they say in the theoretical space. But, you know, at some point you're going to have to confront who you are. And I'm confronting my own desires, you know, in a really, I mean, I'm at the beginning because... I'm very good at intellectualizing queerness. I see. I'm very good at saying, queerness is about no boundaries, no limits. (laughs) And I am so comfortable in the limits that I have, (laughs) right? Because it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable in the skin, in the body. absolutely. And I'm, I'm scared to lose that, to become unfixed and to become unmoored and to try to start this process all over again because we're already navigating a world that is trying to grind us to dust as audrey lord would say mm-hmm. we're already fighting against systemic racism and homophobia and transphobia to even approach some sort of level of comfort in within these socially demarcated identities is a huge triumph and it's also not wow. right because it, it it's it's a it's a stasis mm-hmm. and for those of us who are concerned with the future who are concerned with our personal transformation and our evolutions, and who are concerned with bringing other people along, mm-hmm. right? Making sure that we all get free. I think it's it's a challenge that we have to take on. We have to be willing to dislocate ourselves from who we feel comfortable as.
3: Would you say that you was you were like supported on your journey to actually discovering this aspect of yourself?
2: I don't think I asked for support. Really? Yeah, do you mean where I am now versus as a teenager? Yeah, like, yeah. you know,
3: on your journey, like, you know, with your with your journey to exploring your queerness, it, like, it's basically sitting more comfortably in your skin, would you say that you found support or you're basically what you're saying is that you didn't require it?
2: No, you know, Kevin Kwashi calls what happens in the private moments or the private moments caves of our mind, are mm-hmm. wild and voluptuous interior lives. Mm. It is there that we're able to run free, to explore, to try things on, to, to think and to imagine, right? And that we have to do a much better job at protecting those wild and voluptuous interior landscapes, right? Mm-hmm. Where we are free, where mm-hmm. we're not hemmed in by societal expectations. It's a space that no one has access to. Mm. And I've always felt safe in my interior life Right, I say, I'm, I'm working on like a collection of writing called The Dancing Boy. Mm. And it starts off with this idea that a long time ago, I, I put this little boy away to protect him.
3: Absolutely. And
2: there are moments in my life, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, where he comes out to dance, mm. where he feels safe, and he feels like he can be himself. And so this queer journey has been about gravitating and, and running towards the things that make that little boy light up and want to dance. And so I don't need help doing that. Absolutely. Right? What also helps, though, at the same time is that so many of my friends have gone through incredible transformations. I'm thinking of Darkwa. You know Darkwa. Mm-hmm. The Darkwa I met on January 28th, 2015, or 2016, is at essence the same Darkwa, but the expression of Darkwa is so different, right? Mm-hmm. And watching them lean into themselves has been really remarkable, has been something really remarkable to bear witness to.
3: I want to go back to you saying that, you know, you put this uh, little boy away mm-hmm. um, I wanted to ask what made you feel like you wanted to put this little boy away at the time that you did?
2: Mm. I don't know if he was shut away at once. I think he was, he was put away and he came back out and was put away again. Right. And so I think, it's a gradual process. Yeah. And then he, and then it was decided between us <laughs> that, <Yeah. laughs> that he should just stay in there for now.
3: And what was the reason?
2: I think I didn't s- feel very seen as a kid. and you know, I was very expressive and, you know, um, what they would call flamboyant, I guess, mm-hmm. or what my, dad would call en- what my dad called energetic. Okay. <laughs> um, and I spent a lot of time on my own, which is probably why I'm so comfortable in the wild and voluptuous interior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I d- the only time he really came out was in when I was at school, when I was able to pursue things that I found curious Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was among people who, I don't know, responded to that maybe. Yeah. I felt good. And I felt good. I was very popular in high school. You know, i won best dress, and I was on homecoming court and I did very well in school. I excelled. And so I really felt like my full self in that space, you know? Okay. Um, but I think then when I emerged into the, the real world, if you will, capital R, cap- capital W, mm-hmm. I realized very quickly that, um, that he wouldn't be safe out there. Like my first, exp- I think I've spoken about this in the show before, but my first sexual experience with another man was, was an assault. And so I think then I was like, right, okay, let's put him away and let's start paying attention to our surroundings and be just be a bit more cautious.
3: Wow. It's so incredible that you've become, you know, such a beacon for um, uh, queerness, you know, and also for queer black, uh, uh, the, for the queer black community. Specifically, specifically yeah. um Specifically, you know, it interests me as to that particular journey of yours, you know, because, you know, the reason why I was asking about this little boy is that I wanted a bit more context as to how you decided to... Go towards this like go towards being this person to represent this community in this way Mm. and I'm still trying to figure out what made Josh decide that this is the community that I want to speak to
2: yeah I think that for uh, since I put him away I tried to play by the rules as it were right which at the time I felt were kind of white gay rules and I wanted to be accepted in the real world in the same way that I was in high school. I mean, so many of us have that experience, right? We wanna go back to the halcyon days of high school, when, mm-hmm. or many of us, wanna go back to the halcyon days of high school, right? Where everything was, was a bit, e- where it felt a bit easier, right? The dramas of high school notwithstanding, right? It was a, it can be a really, a really good time. I look back very fondly on that. But I think navigating the world, I just, I was trying to be something that I wasn't, right? That only the, that little boy knows Right, He's the truest expression of that, the dancing mm. boy. Um, and he's creative and he's intellectual and he doesn't care what other people think and he dances in the rain. You know, like he's very romantic and mm-hmm. soft and tender and thoughtful and patient and kind. Um, and I think that when I put him away, I had to put all those other things away too. You know? Right. But he, he's not a piecemeal kind of thing. Mm. But my big awakening was in 2015 with the Baltimore riots. Like my political awakening, if you will, I think kind of unlocked the door to him a little bit to that to that little boy a bit so uh, and you know the, with this Bo- bolts um was
3: it boston riots
2: yeah the the, the in the wake of the murder of freddie gray
3: oh i see yeah. um and would you say that this was the thing that ignited this oh yeah
2: that was the, uh, that was my that was my political awakening 100 percent. really yeah i remember crying in the barber chair wow yeah I was just so mad
3: it affected you deeply
2: so much and i don't it was particularly the admonishment of president obama i have on my wrist it's now crossed out but it's the date of obama's initial election okay yeah because my grandfather and my grandmother they were so happy and our family's black american and my grandfather traced our roots to like the 1700s in tennessee Mm -hmm. and for a family who's descended from the enslaved like that's a remarkable achievement And so we were looking at Obama as a family and going, this is the truest expression of belonging. Right. But when I, so when I heard Obama admonishing the rioters, I just, I started crying. I was so mad at him. Mm. I was, I felt so let down, so disappointed because, you know, James Baldwin says that riots are the language of the unheard. Right. Mm. And that they thought that a city was more important than the people who who inhabit that place was really upsetting to me. And and, you know, shortly after that, I got this tattoo crust out, I was so mad.
3: And um is that your origin? Um your your family's from the states? My dad's family is. Your dad's family yeah,
2: is from the states? Yeah, my mom's family is white British. It's quite funny. They're like from Bedford. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're not at all. It's like my my dad's family is like decidedly middle class mm-hmm. and my mum's family is like um like really working class Mm. yeah it's funny what is your relationship
3: um with um rooting
2: that is a fantastic question i don't know i feel atlanta is my home it's where i went to high school it's where i felt like it's where i had the best time of my youth i think i started to find roots in that city and of course being surrounded by I mean, Atlanta is an amazing city to be black in, right? I just went to Atlanta. Yeah, it's just, oh God. I mean, <laughs> gentrification aside, you know, it is a beautiful city, right? And Absolutely. the blackness within that city is so expansive and expressive. And I, I felt like I could be myself in, the, in, that, in that city. And on the other hand, I feel really European, not British. <laughs> I do feel really <laughs> European. I mean, that's why I came back. It's why I came back in the first place. I wanted to study fashion at London College of Fashion and, you know, take trips to Spain and Milan and you know, all that. And, um, and so I, I'm a, but I'm okay with my roots being in various places. I've, my dad was in the military, so we moved all over the place all the time. So I don't think that home is necessarily a place, mm. though I am increasingly looking for a place to root myself physically
3: yeah. Um, It's interesting because, you know, rooting can be so many things. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, you don't think it's just about a place. Um, But when I did speak about rooting, you did speak of places. So mm-hmm. I wonder, what are the other spaces in which you are basically like, you know, experiencing and, you know, checking to see whether you can root yourself?
2: Well, the queer black community, for sure. Yes. That okay. I'm firmly rooted there. Yeah. And that has been but that's like tree roots. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's an old ash tree and oh. it is, it's in the ground, right? Mm. And I, I feel most comfortable in, in these spaces, most like myself, most useful. I, I have mm. a, a, an unending need to be useful to other people. Mm-hmm. I think that's obvious, right? Like yeah. I need to be, a, I need to be useful, not necessarily always of service, mm. but I need people to know that I'm here to be utilized. Um, and so, and, and that's my focus. And that, I say a tree because I, I imagine I'm imagining a big oak tree like I feel firm mm. I feel trustworthy I feel like I bear shade I feel like I'm really rooted there yeah um and in the other space I'm rooted in is, in an, is an intellectual one mm-hmm. I, it's just an invigorating mental pursuit of ideas uh, musings, writing, poetry like it's it's all up there, my Mercury is in Pisces, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm most at home in kind of the languid thinking, you know, kind of mm-hmm. shut away from the world in my head, daydreaming, mm-hmm. and so much beautiful stuff happens there.
3: One thing I always find exciting about talking to you or listening to you is like your extensive vocabulary, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody who English was not my first language, whenever I hear you speak, I'm like this man really reads. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, but it's intentional. Yeah. I learned a long time ago that, I mean, I've always been attracted to the language and languages in general. Like, I studied Spanish. I um, I think we have to study English in the same way as we study other languages, mm-hmm. which we don't do. <laughs> um, which is not to say I speak perfect English, right? Grammatically perfect. But what is
3: perfect anyway? What is
2: it? Yeah, exactly, that imposition. But, um I don't know, I I learned a long time ago that we have the power to build or destroy worlds with what we say Mm -hmm. and how we say it. And that the way we speak, the tone, the cadence, the intention comes across. Mm -hmm. And so I I have to think about it less now, but Mm -hmm. certainly over the course of doing Busy Being Black, I've I've gotten a bit more, I think, fluent in just the way I want people to feel when they're with me. I want them to feel held when I speak. I want them to feel delighted, enchanted, awakened.
3: Right. You know, there's a lot of things I see in you that is uh, extremely valuable. But I wanted to ask you, what do you find is valuable?
2: About me? About yourself. Oh. Damn, dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, I want to preface this. One of the things I struggle with is my worth. Particularly because my worth is so linked to my physical appearance and my sexual utility, right? My sexual serviceability to other people's pleasures and desires.
3: Hallelujah to this man.
2: (laughs) And I'm struggling with it and I've struggled with it for as long as I can remember. I've only recently had the language to access that. Um, And so I'm working on that. I think what I'm finding is that my value is in my desire to be useful. And, and in my curiosity, right? These two things come together so beautifully. And these two things are, I think are helping me figure out what my extended value might be. But I also resist the language of value, right? Just because I I can't help but think of the slave block and black people always needing to be, always being measured in pounds and pence and in worth and what we can do for it, right? Which is, I don't know. Value is is language that I wouldn't value a bull. I don't know if if that's language I would use to talk about or think about myself.
3: Um, it's it's always interesting that conversation about value because you're right. You know, the word value is actually you know it's just a word created because really and truly being being is actually what we should be doing <laughs> <Thank> you, <laughs> you know being um but i do find it interesting in a world that you know is like you said you went back to you know it's slavery and how everything is about measuring mm-hmm. what somebody can provide That's right. in this kind of world i find that a lot of people get lost in trying to prove they're valuable that's right and in doing that, they often lose the essence of their value for themselves or understanding the relationship of themselves with themselves, basically um, in the search for what other people should see valuable in them. Mm. So in my question of asking you, I wanted to see if, you know, you would like the rest of us, (laughs) you know, you know, who, who, who go through that. Um, and also, um, you know, you talk about your family, you talk about how, you know, they, um, uh, you know, you talk about your dad and your mom. I wanted to understand how did that, that dynamic of your father and your mother creating someone like you, give you certain tools in order to say, I'm going to go forward into, 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 into this, bring myself forward out into this community.
2: I actually don't know, I have been thinking about that. I started thinking about it in 2016 at a very specific moment. I was at an event um called for LGBTQ entrepreneurs. And I was sitting in the audience and listening to these entrepreneurs and people working in diversity and inclusion and venture capital talk about them going back into the closet when they entered the workforce. And I was confused. I was <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you what? you know, like I didn't understand how people were different like how they weren't themselves when they went into a workspace. And I was thinking, I was like, God, I came out like a fucking unicorn. And I never looked back. Mm. I've never once walked into a space. And I might have hidden parts of myself, but never my sexuality. And I thought, right, so what happened when I was growing up that gave me that, that made that idea to me so confusing. Exactly. That one might jettison that part of themselves. I think part of it is that because I organized such a, because I felt like it was such an organizing part of my identity mm-hmm. that I had to own it properly, right? Mm-hmm. That I was very aware that I was going into a world that can be homophobic and the pride in me being gay had to be very robust. Mm. Um, and so I never wanted to equivocate on that. But at, at, at the core, there must be something in my upbringing. I actually think of my grandfather your grandfather? Yeah, more than my um, mom and dad, because it was my grandfather who said, when you walk into a room, you extend your hand and you stand up straight and you say, I'm Josh Rivers. And he always said it was very important that I said Josh Rivers and not just Josh, or yeah, and he, he was always very adamant about that. And so I was surrounded by a family, a black family, um, who was very proud to be the Rivers clan, right? Yeah, And okay. Yeah, and so I think that is more, there was that kind of ecosystem of family members around me who, in their own ways, in differing ways, affirmed me as I was growing up. You know, I I didn't have anyone really besides my grandmother, who had a problem with me, a vocalized problem, when I came out.
3: That's that's um, that's interesting. And 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 how did that make you feel?
2: I didn't recognize it at the time. I see. Yeah, I recognized the silence as dismissive. I recognized my dad not when i came out he said well i can't change it what do you want me to do about it <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a great response yes um but at the time i heard that as dismissive or apathetic or not what i wanted i wanted rage my relationship with my dad has always wanted provoking him for a response and he's never given it to me and so i always <laughs> wanted and at this i've spoken about this elsewhere but i had been sitting on this for years right mm. and it had been metastasizing and festering. And I thought I'm going to be kicked out of the house and be rejected. My grandfather's a black Baptist preacher from the South. Like mm. there's no way this is going to be okay with them. And when it was just a non-event, I was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> if it was never going to be a big deal, why did I think it was going to be one? Mm. And it made me realize that we don't actually do a great deal of aftercare. When people come out, we don't, check in with them and because we i think society tells us culture tells us that we come out and that's it you're out so you must be happy now but mm-hmm. actually how do you metabolize or do away with rather <laughs> those feelings um that you held on to, to for so long like that must have a tremendously negative impact on the psyche right this feeling that the people you love the most in the world are going to reject you yeah.
3: yeah yeah that's 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 the case for 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 literally like most people mm-hmm. um I wanted to ask you as well, when do you feel the most loved?
2: When I'm with Larone, my best friend. Oh. Yeah. Yeah? Oh, don't. I'll cry. Oh. I love him so much. Oh. Yeah. And I feel um. so held. Mm. Yeah, really held. Seems. He's just, yeah, he's a remarkable human being. And our relationship has been one of us kind of holding each other and nurturing each other and i think i i hope that every black boy gets a best friend like leron like he's he's incredible
3: that sounds so beautiful yeah, that's
2: really nice. do you see what the universe has convened around you the constellation of stars voices and people that light up your life and guide you home you must learn to reach out and touch those stars, pull them closer to you, so that even in your moments of darkness, you are illuminated in all of your imperfect glory. Wake up, little black boy. People are rooting for you. Go forth, little black boy. You are everything, everything, everything. B and Black's 100th episode returns in a moment. Just Like Us, the LGBTQ Young People's Charity is looking for volunteers to become ambassadors. If you're between the ages of 18 and 25 and identify as LGBTQ, you'll use your voice, develop skills, and find community on the Ambassador Program by speaking in schools and taking part in skills workshops. Sign up now on the Just Like Us website. A link to which you'll find in the show notes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for
0: you. What do you do when you win?
2: Congratulations on 100 episodes of Busy Being Black. I know it's a huge milestone, but I would argue that a cultural milestone was reached much earlier. I have been in spaces where I've heard and witnessed the way in which you have communicated to us, the space and care you've given to these conversations and the impact it's had on all of us.
4: Um, As I'm recording this, Josh, thinking about all the fun times we've had together, I'm realizing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've known each other for almost 10 years, which is kind of crazy, because 10 years is a a long time, and, you know, we haven't aged a day since, and we haven't had any help, but that's besides the point. Um, During these almost 10 years, uh, we've had a lot of fun together, a lot of sad moments together, and there's one moment uh, during that period that really stands out to me. And it was um, when you and I, we were in your living room dancing, being completely silly, we were completely out of our minds Um, and you received that podcast recorder and being there in that moment when you received that podcast recorder is really special to me, especially knowing, you know, where have you come and where you've taken this podcast from that day on And um, I really cherish that and I'm really proud of you. And, you know, I was thinking at the time, wow, this guy is going to be a star. Like we all know that he's going to go so far, but my God, he needs a better podcast recorder. So I really hope you've upgraded because that little thing I remember thinking was pretty sad looking. (laughs)
2: I'm Josh Rivers and you're listening to Busy Being Black's 100th episode. To honor this landmark moment, my friend Dilemma takes my seat to interview me.
3: Do you often feel held?
2: I do, increasingly. not just by Laurent? Yeah, 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 increasingly. Uh, my love language is words of affirmation. Uh, so I, I, and second, followed by touch, right? And the podcasting space does it all <laughs> for best either of, best of those ones. things. <laughs> So sometimes (laughs) I struggle (laughs) because I need to hear it. Um, I do like, I, if I'm doing a good job, I need to know. Otherwise I'll go into my head and i will be like, you're doing a bad job. No one likes you. Like I'll, I'll kind of spin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so luckily I'm surrounded by people in a community who are quite open with their affirmations. So I'm learning to pay attention to the affirmations that matter Mm -hmm. more than seeking affirmation from anyone who'll give it to me, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a, it's a lifelong lesson, I think. But, um, and so, yeah, I do feel held. I feel held more now that I know who to seek for holding.
3: Mm. Okay, well, this, this, this next question is a, is, a, is, a, is a big one.
1: Okay.
3: Let's say, like, you could uh, rub a lamp and the genie would come out, mm-hmm. right? And you mm-hmm. had, you know, three, three things. And the uh, well, first thing I wanted to ask is, the first, what is your political dream?
2: I don't know. I'm figuring that out. Yeah. I'm reading an incredible book at the, at the minute called Black Transfeminism by Marquise B. Bay. Sorry, I keep, you know, all of us who've grown up as ardent drones in the beehive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> every time we see B, why, it must say, it must mean Beyonce. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Marquise Bay. And... um what Marquise is offering is a way of thinking about the future that I hadn't considered, which is this, which is um, an unknowing, and I find that really disorienting, mm-hmm. because as someone who needs knowledge or who uses knowledge as a, as structures to hold on to, mm-hmm. uh, to not have a ground to stand on or a structure to hold on to, I find really scary. Absolutely, but that's part yeah. of the challenge. But, and I think one of the prompts in Marquise's work is that. We don't know, we can't know. How could we know what our ideal political situation is? Because everything that we know is a response to oppression and domination and imperialism and capitalism. We only know a political response in response to that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe we. Maybe an ideal political situation is that we don't need one, right? Like that people understand themselves and each other and are placed within the world among the family of things, as Mary Oliver would say. And that from there, we just decided to do it beautifully. Mm. I know it's a bit (laughs) woo woo, but I don't know that politics has ever really served us. And I think politics is only necessary because of the problems that politics causes.
3: Absolutely, I mean that I'm saying absolutely because that's my own, that's what I think as well. Um, So that's really interesting. Oh, I've never ever heard anyone talk about the unknowing of a political dream, hello. Yeah. Martin Luther, we got a new one
2: <laughs> I'm not on the mountain top. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm in space. laughs>
3: okay, the next one is that what is your dream for the community that's around you? This could be your friends, your family, this could be the, the wider queer black community that you serve. What is that dream looking like for you?
2: To want for nothing. Beautiful. To want for nothing. And I think about that like I think about my niece and nephew. Mm. Part of what motivates me is I want to have enough money and resources that those two humans never have to work a day in their life so that they can just pursue what lights them up. Because that is what it is to be alive, right? Pursue mm. what lights us up. And there, there's so many constructed and Im- Imposed barriers that prevent us, the majority of us, from doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't mean I want to, like, I mean, I do also mean I want to lavish them and spoil them and give them everything that they could ever want, but I just want to give them the grounding so they can figure stuff out. Maybe they might pursue art or dance or decide they want to build a tech company. I don't know. If they decide they want to work and create and exchange value for their for whatever that is they create, fine. But at base, I want them to know what it means to live free of the worry, as, as much as I can provide that. Mm. And I want that for our communities as well. Yeah, And it's, th- that desire and that dream is impacting the ideas I'm having, having about the future of busy being black.
3: Yeah, yeah, um, and it must do, because obviously, you know, we love to dream things into reality. Mm-hmm. That's a part of being creative, right? That's right. Um, the, the third, who wait. is it that, sorry, who is it yeah. that
2: said that without imagination we can't take responsibility? Oof. Right. Oh, it was Kafka, not Kafka, um, Murakami in Kafka on the Shore.
3: That's so beautiful. Yeah. Without the Without imagination, the we imagination, can't take responsibility. We can't take responsibility. I'm paraphrasing, but
2: it's along those lines. Mm.
3: <laughs> and um, lastly, what is your dream in love?
4: Mm.
2: I don't know. I see it in Lerone, like mm-hmm. uh, that kind of emotional um, vibrancy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the best way I can describe it. I see it, When I think of Lerone, I think of colors, really bright, beautiful colors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I don't know, the intellectual is really in- interrupting <laughs> my heart at I the know. minute. Because <laughs> our heart is... I don't know as i as I try to get back to the dancing boy as I try to get to a place where he feels safe enough to be out all the time, mm-hmm. what does he want, and I don't know that yet I don't know what he wants. I think my relationship with Lerone approaches that, mm-hmm. but maybe a relationship isn't just the addition of a sexual element. Mm-hmm. maybe I have multiple Lerones. Mm-hmm. maybe I have a polyamorous approach to love, maybe it's. Maybe it's a woman. Maybe it's a non-binary person. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm going to lean into that unknowingness that, that Marquise is, is prompting us to embrace and say, I don't know. I'm ready to be enchanted. Right. I'm ready to be surprised. I'm mm. ready to be delighted. I'm ready to be swept away. All those things that one needs to mm. fall in love or to choose love um I'm, I'm ready for it, but i don't want to be too prescriptive about what it looks like in my head because it's more of a feeling I just, absolutely yeah you
3: know. um what i'm hearing you say is that you have a date with your inner child pending <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah yeah he's like yelling at me from behind the bars <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> although that's, i don't feed him much <laughs> and he's, he's hungry <laughs> he's, no, he's, he's well fed he is i i do that's the part of it right that this goes back to Kevin Kwashi in the wild and Beloved's interior life. He dominates there, mm-hmm. right? And the things that he enjoys, right, we pursue together. Whether or not the world gets to see him all the time is quite another matter.
3: I see, I see, um, and would you say that there is a you have a relationship with listening to that inner child?
2: I'm getting better at it. I've just made a decision about my future that. I I've been quite unhappy since last October. Mm-hmm. And it must have started before then, but I noticed it in October. And it started as a real restlessness. And I know from my own living my own life and inhabiting my own body that when I start to feel restless, I need something's wrong, right? I can't be calm. I everything that makes me irritable like it's a it it emerges in the gut, a real visceral restlessness. And so that's when I noticed that feeling in my gut and I was like oh shit you know like <laughs> something's not right Um, and it's taken me almost a year to name it and place it but I had a really eye-opening week a few weeks ago and I emerged out of that what I call the underbelly and I was like right these three things have to change and I just owned these decisions executed on them and I've been on cloud nine for 16 days since I made the decision. Wow. Yeah. So it's moments like that. He also appears, I think my inner child and the ancestors appear through goosebumps. I have really physical reactions to stimuli, like Mm -hmm. um, spiritual stimuli, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I, when I read something in my, I get goosebumps or someone says something, I get goosebumps. I make a note of that. Mm -hmm. I go, aha. So you like this. Interesting. I'll go do more of that.
3: Interesting. And it leads me on to the next question, which is, what is your relationship with stillness?
2: Improving. Yes. The lockdown helped. Mm. Yeah, because because I feel the need to be of service. Absolutely. The social life of utility can be quite draining, and as someone who is ultimately an extrovert, um, I do I do vibe off kind of social interactions. I had underestimated how much I also need stillness. How much being on my own is an absolutely regenerative and nourishing act for me. Mm-hmm. And so, when we were all forced into the confines, mm-hmm. um, I was I was over the moon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was safe, right? I was had a roof over my head. I had a job. I had food in my fridge. So I was incredibly lucky. And because I had those those necessities, those comforts, even. Mm-hmm. Um, I was allowed to kind of just take a breath, and when I exhaled and sunk into the couch, I was like, right. And I was looking at my bookcase one day, and I was like, all these books I haven't had a chance to read. And I started picking up these books right. and reading them, and I felt so happy. And I thought, right, I need to do a better job at, you know, um, making space for myself in all of this.
3: I mean, the common the common symptom of someone who is um Continuously of service and always, you know, wanting to um, please or wanting to help. The common symptom of some uh, some of those people is uh, depletion. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm like, you know, the best way to top up your cup when you are depleted always comes from stillness. In fact, the body dep- depresses you, causes you to have deep rest in order for you to get. That top to fill up. your cup.
2: That's very interesting. I write an article, an essay, rather, um, on Eon, and I'll include it in the show notes, maybe, or or in the ecosystem of <laughs> Busy's offerings. But um, about depression, uh, from this perf- uh, researcher or theoreticist, you know, doing work at the intersection of depression and psychology and evolution, actually, and um, she actually argues that depression, and I've, I've not suffered from depression and so for anyone who has I don't mean um, I'm not trying to you know speak over your lived experience but rather just offer what she offers Um, she says that depression or she thinks her research indicates that depression might actually not be maladaptive but actually might be um, a warning sign um, that we have developed purposefully to Mm -hmm. let us know when it's time to rest
3: absolutely yeah. i mean that's also m- that's also my belief and uh, as somebody who i don't um i don't you re- really use the language of depression I mean I use the language of depression to communicate with English people yes but um it is the best time to um listen and receive for me mm-hmm. for me I find it is the best time so i i don't personally see depression as a bad thing I'm, I'm absolutely still in depression and if I had the pressure that most people do of like having to go to a nine-to-five having to you know do other things right. I think it would look really bad <laughs> you know I'd feel really terrible mm. but because I don't have those um, pressures I almost can sit and listen and download and receive all the information that's needed in order to move forward so I guess the reason why I'm sharing this is because I wanted to know for you what that looks like, what that receiving of information looks like for you.
2: It normally happens uh, in what I call la madrugada. So in Spanish, I studied Spanish, but in in Spanish, there's a word for the very specific time between midnight and dawn called la madrugada. And I say La Madrugada because it's more interesting than saying the witching hour. Uh, I just think (laughs) it's more romantic and beautiful. (laughs) Um, But the ancestors speak to me loudest and most clearly during La Madrugada. So I'll wake up at like two, between 2.30 and 3.30 every morning. And sometimes it'll be a name of something. It'll be a quote. It'll be a direction. It'll be, uh, there'll be something. And if I write it down, some of my best poetry and writing comes in La Madrugada.
3: Mm, And this is after you wake?
2: I normally go back to sleep yeah but I'll be up for like an hour two hours and then I'll go back to sleep I'm an early riser anyway so I'm always out of bed by six thirty.
3: That is interesting that's brilliant and so what would you like for busy being black moving forward like if you could paint me a picture of I mean like seeing what you've done so far and being able to speak to the people that you've spoken to you know you know and have the conversation some of them really tough uh, Conversations that you've had, some of them really inspiring, some of them extremely knowledgeable. You've been able to speak to various people throughout a hundred, pod, pod, 99 yeah, podcasts, right? You've been able to speak to so much amazing people. So, if I could ask, like, if you could stand like Moses and look at the promised land.
2: Well, you know, Joshua inherited the, his, his legacy from J- Moses, didn't he? This, he did. Right. See, here we go,
3: Josh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my question is, if you can look at the promised land uh-huh. of busy being black, what does that look like at the moment
2: for you? At the moment, it's a it's a vision I've had for two years, which came to me in La Gada. actually. I woke up from a dream. I'll describe it to you. I... I'm sitting with someone, I don't know who they are. They're wearing bright yellow. I'm wearing bright pink. And we are suspended on a clear circular platform over a jungle as the sun is setting. And so behind us are these beautiful pinks and purples and the sky above is still turning this deeper blue. And it's very high quality and beautifully lit. And this 360 camera is going around as we talk about whatever, whatever it is we're talking about and I see someone receiving that on their screen and being moved to tears. So I, I, that's as much as I've got as far as the future, but um, yeah, I wanna do something that is impactful. Busy started because I was surrounded by people who were offering me their wisdom at a time in need, at my time of need. <laughs> at our continuing time of need. <laughs> um, and I thought other people need to hear this wisdom, right? It's, you got to pass it on, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to share this with other people. Um, and so I want to keep doing that, that like the wisdom that is collected so far on Busy Being Black is only a fraction. Like it's an infinitesimal amount of wisdom people, you know? And our queerness and our blackness extends, as Jafari Allen would say, as if we are rhizomes, right? Rhizomes, their roots extend horizontally instead of vertically. Mm-hmm. They're able to grab resources from far beyond their source. Um, and I want to tap into that everywhere and then just put it on a platform that is so visually and audit- orally beautiful mm. that people know that, um, that these experiences matter and that they deserve the reverence of money, of investment, of prioritizing, right? They mm-hmm. deserve. I think the platform represents this idea that we're s- we're there for everyone to see,
3: right? It's a it's a it's a strong form of representation.
2: Not representation, because representation is never enough. Right. 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 And I th- I I don't think busy is an end in and of itself, right? It's rather part of the constellation i see of resources available to people and i think i just want to continue i got i figured out where my heart wants to go mm-hmm. right and that's here in this community in this type of space mm-hmm. and now my creativity is going well you could make an impact in this way with busy being black and you can make an impact in this way and have you thought about doing this and what about like that mm-hmm. and that's exciting to me so i think busy the future of busy is like an an ecosystem within a larger constellation—absolutely, just beautiful, thoughtful, tender, intellectually rigorous conversations between two people to com- two people committed to communicating together mm. like this.
3: Yeah, and you know when you speak, and with busy being black and the podcast, you know you have a very emotive approach um, to the way you communicate and also the conversations that you have, and I think that. You know, that is like a a line through all the podcasts is how emotive um, it, it tends to be. Um, I want to ask you about your emotional connection to your work, where it actually stems from, that emotional connection.
2: I need to connect with people. It's a drive. It's a urge i think it comes for the astrological nerds out there aries. Um, <laughs> my aries son is in the eighth house of transformation mm-hmm. and um that apparently means that i have a kind of almost animalistic need to connect and understand other people mm-hmm. connect with and understand other people um and so i just follow that i am yeah. i am supremely interested in other people i think People are utterly fascinating, Absolutely. and their idiosyncrasies, and their curiosities, and the things they get mad about. You know, like I love just watching Larone; <laughs> <I> just <laughs> think he's so interesting, <laughs> and fascinating to watch, right? And mm. to see how people respond to different stimuli. I think people are so fascinating, um, and so I think that emotiveness, and I suppose it's also a call. It's, it's something within me calling out to other people and saying, "You can be soft. It's okay. Mm. I will. I will meet you where you are, and I will hold you.
1: Yeah. yeah, you're not alone." A phrase that I know you like that you heard the first time we connected, really, Josh, was because um, I did an interview with Krista Tippett, and I mentioned a phrase from West Carey during the interview. The phrase is on <laughs> the You are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. And I know that you connected with that in the desire to be that place in terms of what you offer through this podcast. I'm so far removed culturally. Uh, I'm not the one to I, I'm i not the one to praise because I am the one to learn and to be moved with our connection and to be moved to know that this is the work that you've taken and the, the soft space that you've made. Um, An interesting point about this phrase, um, there at the end is the word for um, sore. But it, it, it sounds like, it's not spelt like, but it sounds like the word for fire also. And so I always think that when I listen to Busy Being Black, that um, you embody that uh, adage from Irish, but um, you're also on fire. And by doing that, you're creating a soft space for people to land. But you're also creating a place of warmth, a place of celebration, a place of delight, a place that works at all hours of the day and night. And something that, as I said earlier on, is uh, not seeking to be translated, is proclaiming its own indigenous language and from that point of view is uh, a clarion call really to liberation anti-colonialism celebration flourishing and delight congratulations again josh and um i look forward to continuing to listen
3: yeah i definitely feel that even in your tone even in your voice you know um sometimes you know even if we want to be tyrants you know yeah <laughs> it's like the the, the gifts the <laughs> gifts that you were given <laughs> i
2: can turn on the tyrant i'm an Aries, do right? you know what I
3: mean? <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear from me. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's so it's so blessed to talk to you in this way. It's so it's so good to get to know the Josh behind Busy Being Black on the hundredth episode.
2: You know, I'm so grateful that you did this.
3: Absolutely, this,
2: this invitation.
3: Listen, I'm, I, as cu- as are, I'm as curious as you are. I am as curious as you. Like that's uh, and and I and I wanted to find out. You know. You know, what is what is the special thing about Josh? You know, there is something special. What is the special thing about Josh? And I think in this conversation, just hearing your passion and, you know, your, your, your love for what it is that you do and your love for what your community and what you want from your community. It really excites me to see what the future holds for Busy Being Black, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, you'll be there the whole way, I'm sure.
3: Absolutely. I've been there so far. That's right. (laughs) Day one. (laughs) So um, I think my final question to you is, if in 100 years from now, somebody comes across this episode Mm -hmm. or a episode or the concept of busy being black, What would you like them to feel? What would you like them to know? And what would you like them to say?
2: I would like them to feel a shock of electricity run through them. Yes. I would like them to know that they are not alone. Okay. And I would want them to say out loud to themselves, I am loved. Yeah.
3: Well, you are loved. (laughs) As are you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you, Josh.
2: Dilemma is an acronym. Do you and let every man adapt. She is an artist, musician, and spoken word poet whose life and spiritual guidance continue to enrich and inspire my own. You may remember her voice from our soaring conversation in 2019, which I encourage you all to revisit. Busy Being Black emerged four years ago at a time of great personal distress and transformation. I am unendingly grateful that you all keep showing up, tuning in, and talking back. Busy Being Black returns on Saturday, the 1st of October, for what I'm calling Busy and Black Version 4. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so busy.